This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, May 4, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. The medical malpractice system doesn't serve patients very well. A new Cato Institute book attempts to understand why medical malpractice litigation, how it works, why tort reform hasn't helped, is available now. Charlie Silver is one of the co-authors we spoke last week. There is a surprisingly large amount of medical malpractice. Nobody knows exactly how much malpractice there is because a very large fraction of it goes unreported. Uh, So anyone who says they can uh, estimate it with precision is, you know, conveying false information. Uh, But uh, we know that there are people who are uh, systematically at risk of being injured. For example, secondary infections, infections that occur in hospitals uh, as a result of patients being treated. Uh, These infections are quite common, but they can be eliminated very inexpensively. It's simply that hospitals are not taking the precautions that are needed to reduce them. Um, Every so often, we get a glimpse uh, under the surface and find out how serious The problems are in particular places. For example, we know that VA hospitals have had very significant problems with failing to treat veterans and with mistreating uh, veterans. And sometimes we have um, states that perform what are called uh, uh, cardiac surgery report cards, where they evaluate the uh, rates of mortality and morbidity uh, in cardiac treatments. And it always turns out that places that people think are terrific wind up having high mortality and morbidity rates, while other places that don't have spectacular reputations turn out to do uh, remarkably well. So uh, we get glimpses, but nobody really knows how much malpractice there is. Other than that, we know there's a lot of it. This reminds me uh, a bit of uh, David Goldhill. Uh, in his book, Catastrophic Care, uh, he details the story of his father. This is what sort of introduced him to uh, trying to understand the medical profession. Uh, and his father got an infection in a hospital, got sepsis, and died. And if you look at the rates of hospital-acquired infections, they're quite high. Uh, and to hear David Goldhill tell the story, in many cases, these can be entirely avoided at fairly low cost. So what changes the incentives here about, uh, you know, the doc, what doctors face in terms of following specific protocols to do a better job or, or, you know, a muted incentive perhaps to, to do the right thing? Well, the incentives in the healthcare system do not reward providers for treating patients well. They actually punish providers for doing that. Um, Ideally, from a provider's perspective, you want to have your waiting room full of patients who need treatments. Uh, but if you cure everything that ails them, they won't need to come back. And so you'll have uh, an empty waiting room instead of a full one. Uh, it actually turns out that uh, hospitals and physicians make more money when patients are harmed than when they emerge from treatments well. Uh, because when patients like David Goldhill's father uh, uh, sustain 
post-surgical infections or other complications, uh, providers can charge for addressing those complications. And it turns out that addressing complications is a very significant source of profits for hospitals and doctors. So the incentives are exactly the opposite of what they should be. And when the incentives are wrong, uh, it's unreasonable to think that good results are going to follow. Uh, in the case of uh, David Goldfield's dad, uh, he suffered an infection that probably could have been prevented at very little cost. Uh, the research on these uh, infections, hospital-acquired infections, has shown that through simple procedures like wearing uh, masks and uh, draping the body in protective equipment, and really a few simple things, that the rate of infection can be reduced to uh, an extremely low level. Many hospitals have uh, reduced it to zero in experimental context. So um, it's not expensive, but if you don't reward people for doing it, it doesn't get done. Why do patients find themselves in a situation when they have been a victim of medical malpractice, either through negligence or malice or um, just a mistake? Why do they so rarely find satisfaction in the courts? There are a lot of different reasons. One is patients often don't know that they've been injured as a result of malpractice. Um, patients think well of their physicians and tend to trust them. And often the physicians don't tell the patients that they've been injured as a result of negligence. Uh, patients also know that there was something wrong with them before they went in to be treated. And when you're in poor health to begin with, it's natural to think that you may not return to good health afterwards. In other words, patients can't tell the difference between natural outcomes and outcomes that are unfavorable because of malpractice. So one reason is simply that a lot of people lump it. They just don't recognize that they've been injured as a result of negligence. Um, another reason is that access to lawyers is very constrained. These cases are very expensive to prepare for trial. Uh, consequently, lawyers only take cases that are very good and that have significant damages. If really, if there's any likely weakness in a plaintiff's case at all, a medical malpractice lawyer either will not take it or will drop it after uh, accepting it when the weakness is revealed. Um, so it's very hard to get past the initial hurdle of even having a claim and finding somebody who's going to help you litigate on the claim. And then once you get into the tort system, you discover that the system is slow and cumbersome and expensive and very stingy. Uh, it's, it's not, it's not a place to go, uh, if you're looking for a quick, uh, buck because it's going to be a long time before you get paid anything. And when you do recover, it's not going to be nearly as much as you think it should be. 
And of course, even if you get a recovery, you still have to pay your lawyer's fees and you have to reimburse the expenses that were extended uh, to litigate your case. And so what you're left with after paying all the costs is only a fraction of what you're awarded. One of the biggest surprises that injured uh, people experience is that hospital leads eat up an enormous part of their recoveries. These can be either liens because the hospital was not paid, or they can be liens that are asserted by insurance companies that paid the bills and then want to recover what they paid out of the client, uh, the patient's tort recovery. Uh, after the liens get paid, there's often nothing left uh, for the patient. Um, it's really, it, it's, there are no big winners in the medical malpractice liability system. There are only losers. And the question is really, how big a loser is a person going uh, to be? The lucky ones only lose a little, uh, but a lot of people lose a lot. One thing I hear from uh, Republicans primarily is that if we cap damage awards, uh, that that is somehow a solution to problems in medical malpractice. And I think they paint the medical malpractice system as sort of what you described as this sort of jackpot uh, lottery where uh, people uh, receive these huge awards that do not have some strong relationship to their the actual damages that were incurred. Um, well, what do you make of claims made, again, primarily by Republicans, that damage caps are a fix uh, to problems in medical malpractice? Whether damages caps are a solution to a problem depends upon the problem you're trying to solve. If you're trying to protect physicians from being sued and you're trying to make life better for insurance companies, then yes, damages caps are a great idea. But if you're trying to actually improve improve the tort system, or even more importantly, improve the treatment that patients receive, damages caps don't do anything, uh, anything good, that is. Damages caps uh, affect severely injured patients the worst, right? The, the bigger the loss, the bigger the injury, the bigger the jury verdict, the more likely it is that the damages cap will bite. Uh, so, the people who suffer the worst under damages caps are people who have bad injuries. That's especially true for people who don't have um, significant employment, uh, which tends to be elderly people, women, and children, uh, because economic damages typically are not capped, uh, but economic damages are things like lost wages and hospital expenses. Whereas non-economic damages, which people typically call pain and suffering, are capped. And uh, the people who depend upon pain and suffering damage awards are primarily people who don't have significant economic losses. Uh, so those people are really quite uh, victimized by damages caps. Um, the uh, the other problem with damages caps is that they have none of the effects that their proponents claim for them. In Texas, the uh, Republicans argued that damages caps were needed because doctors were fleeing the state and uh, 
they would protect uh, doctors, they would attract more doctors into the state by protecting them from liability. We studied Texas every way from Sunday to see if damages caps had this effect, if they brought doctors into the state. And what we found was they had no measurable effect at all. They neither brought doctors into the state nor attracted doctors to rural locations, which was another point that was uh, offered in favor of caps. Uh, So zero effect. The, The Republicans also argued that damages cap would save money. They would reduce healthcare spending because of the belief that doctors engage in very significant amounts of what's called defensive medicine, which involves ordering tests and procedures that really patients don't need, but that doctors believe helps them avoid liability claims. Well, it turns out that we studied the effect of the caps on um, defend on medical spending in Texas, and we found, again, no change, no reduction. The same curve of increased spending that existed before uh, the damages caps were imposed continued right along after the caps were imposed. In fact, we found some evidence that spending actually increased, which kind of makes sense. If you think that uh, the tort system uh, constrains doctors and hospitals from performing procedures that are excessively risky, uh, then damages caps essentially remove the brakes and allow them to provide these treatments. And when they provide more treatments, the cost of healthcare goes up. So I don't want to oversell this point. We do show that damages caps have no effect on healthcare spending. We think that they increase spending somewhat. And then lastly, uh, we found some evidence on measures of patient safety that uh, patients were treated somewhat worse after damages caps were imposed, which, of course, again, is what you should expect if treating patients poorly is less likely to generate lawsuits. If our payment system is broken and incentivizes uh, physicians to either treat patients with less than full care and uh, damage caps don't seem to uh, work to bring down costs and patients who suffer injuries either don't know that they've been injured or uh, expect to recover far less than uh, they should should appropriately receive given their injuries. What can possibly be done to fix medical malpractice? It's a hard nut to crack. Uh, But in the short run, there are some things that could be done if there was the political will to do them. For example, there never was a medical malpractice liability crisis. It's not as though one day we had 10 lawsuits and the next day we had a thousand. <laughs> That's not the way the tort system works. The number of lawsuits remains fairly constant. It changes slowly over time. And the same thing is true for jury verdicts and settlements. Uh, they, these things don't change much over time. The, the liability system is mainly reactive. So the best thing that we can do in the short run, as far as liability system is concerned, is simply undo all the damage 
that has been done by the various uh, laws that regulate the system that are designed to constrain litigation. So get rid of damages caps, get rid of restrictions on attorney's fees, uh, get rid of restrictions on expert witnesses, right? Stop requiring uh, expert witnesses to have particular credentials to be licensed in the state, things of that sort that constrict supply. Basically, deregulate the liability system so that it can operate in the way that it historically uh, did. That's a short-run kind of a fix. But we have to realize that fixing the liability system is really a small part of making healthcare better. Um, there is no area in the economy where we rely on lawsuits as the main driver of quality improvement. That, there, that lawsuits always play a small but important role in ensuring that sellers treat buyers well. The main bulk of the work is done by incentives that exist in the market, right? Sellers improve their products and find ways to make them less expensively because by doing these things, they can attract business. They can increase their market share. They can become more profitable. We have to restore to healthcare the same incentives, the same market incentives. To do that, we're going to have to change the way we think about the healthcare system. This is the whole point of overcharged. Uh, it is that we rely far too heavily on third party payment arrangements, meaning insurance and government agencies primarily to pay for health care. Nobody uses their insurance to pay for their cell phone bill. You pay for that out of pocket, but people reflexively use their insurance to pay for visits to doctor's offices that cost less than their monthly uh, cell phone bill. You know, nobody uses their insurance to put gasoline in their cars, but again, People use their insurance to pay for medications that are really inexpensive. Uh, you know, uh, we just have to get out of the habit of using insurance for anything other than real uh, disasters, real emergencies, uh, and, and restore first-party payment. And to an important degree, this is now happening. You know, there was an economist who once observed that if something can't go on forever, it will stop. And that's what's happening in the healthcare system now. The system has become so expensive that lots and lots of people have been looking for alternative ways of getting care that are cheaper and better. And what we're seeing now is a very large expansion of the retail healthcare sector. Walmart, for example, is opening health clinics at its stores. And these are complete soup to nuts kinds of healthcare uh, providers. They will provide routine exams. They also provide dental treatments. They'll monitor your blood pressure. They'll monitor your diabetes. They'll do all kinds of things. And the prices are posted online and they're absurdly cheap. Uh, I learned that uh, a, a dental cleaning at a Walmart store cost, I think, $25. Um, you know, I can't remember paying less than $200 for a dental cleaning. Uh, but if it can be done that inexpensively by a, 
a, a dental technician, more power to Walmart. Uh, and we're going to see lots of innovations. Uh, we've already seen as a result of the epidemic a great expansion of telemedicine because telemedicine is convenient. People don't have to drive anywhere to see their doctor. And telemedicine is getting better and better over time as your phone will quickly become an important diagnostic tool. Um, and we're just seeing all kinds of uh, innovations that will be uh, that are just going to sweep the field. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're, we will be getting all of our medicines online. If you need something in an emergency, I predict you'll be able to walk up to a machine, a dispensary somewhere, flash a, a barcode and get an emergency fill of whatever the medicine is that you need, even if the pharmacy is officially closed. Uh, it's, it's going to happen. There are going to be big changes, um, and these changes will happen from below, with, by which I mean they'll be driven by consumers. They will not require politicians to agree that they should happen. In fact, the most important thing is that the politicians not prevent them from happening, which is a great danger. If I understand uh, what you're saying correctly, in in some ways, what we are seeing is an opting out of a third party payment system. That's right. That's right. Insurance has become so expensive that lots of people uh, are either opting out of the system entirely or they're being covered by insurance policies that actually provide far fewer benefits. And so their deductibles are higher, their co-pays are higher, uh, and they wind up paying for a lot of health care themselves. And when they pay for health care themselves, what they find out is that if they shop around, they can often get much lower prices than providers charge insurance companies. It's really, it's quite amazing. In, in Overcharged, we have dozens of examples of people who buy simply making a couple of phone calls, we're able to get bargain rates for x-rays and MRIs and blood tests and all kinds of things that if they had purchased, you know, with their insurance would have cost, you know, five times as much. Charlie Silver is co-author of Medical Malpractice Litigation, How It Works, Why Tort Reform Hasn't Helped. It's available now. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 